Well, Sally was living in a poverty-stricken home. Her husband had died about 30 years before, and once he died, she became so discouraged that she never wanted to leave the house. Now, you can imagine that if a home has been virtually untouched for 30 years, it was in sore need of many repairs. Pipes were leaking. The house severely needed some painting years ago. The roof was leaking. She didn't have any money. And so they turned off the lights to this house, and so that meant that there was no heat in her little house. Uh, by now, Sally was cooking on a little Coleman stove over in the corner. Her clothes were threadbare, and she was living in a very terrible, bad, rough situation, as you can imagine. Her neighbors hardly ever saw her because she never left to get out of the house until one of her friends, Miriam, who had not seen Sally for 30 years, decided to come by and to see her. And as she came, she saw this house deteriorated and in a complete mess. Sally, too, was thin and emaciated, and so she could tell right away that Sally was desperate. And so she said, Sally, I'm here to help. Let's get started. And so she brought in some food and said, let's get started with this place. Let's clean this up and let's clean that up. And as they were cleaning up, they came across an old roll-top desk that Sally's husband Jeb had 30 years ago. And as Marion rolled it down, she saw a folder that said, for Sally. And in fact, there was a whole stack of things, various letters and, and notes that he wanted his wife to have. And Miriam asked Sally, Sally, what is all of this? And she said, I don't know. I've never looked inside the desk. I was just so discouraged after he passed that I just have left it shut all these years. And as they opened up one of the folders, there was a letter inside that read something like this. Dear Sally, I don't have much time left on earth but I've made all the provisions necessary for you. I will be leaving this world shortly because I know this cancer is terminal, but you will not be wanting for anything. There is the bank book in the folder. Take that to the bank, please. There's a key to our safe deposit box. And please know that I love you very much and signed his name, Jeb. It was discovered that in the savings account deposited some 30 years earlier, there was about $58,000. But with compound interest, it was now worth $254,000. In the safety deposit box, there was a coin collection in itself worth $47,000. There were stock certificates that were worth $550,000, and then there was liquid cash of $32,000. As it turns out, Sally was one of the richest women in the city. She was worth liquid cash $883,000, but she was living in abject poverty. She was living as if she was a pauper with no money to buy food, clothes, to have electricity, yet she ironically was incredibly wealthy. The question I want to ask this morning, could it be, is it possible that our Lord left us extremely rich and extremely wealthy? But could it be that at times we are living poverty-stricken Christian lives?
Men, have you ever felt powerless to overcome those immoral thoughts that flow through your mind? Women, have you felt powerless to overcome that critical tongue? Have you ever felt that in your life you have failed in the same thing again and again and again? And you have said to yourself, why is it that I cannot get what I believe in my head into action in my life? Somebody doesn't have to tell me that it's wrong. I don't need more reinforced guilt that what I'm doing is wrong. I need power to change. Has anybody ever felt that way? I think all of us at times in our lives have been frustrated when the devil has attacked us and we have fallen. And I think all of us at times have felt powerless. Have you ever felt at times that you wanted to say something to that non-Christian friend and you didn't quite know what to say or how to phrase it and you felt powerless in your witness? There are times that we feel powerless in our personal lives, that we feel powerless in our witness. And the answer to that is the ministry, I believe, of the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in our lives. So we want to take a look this morning at the promise of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 6 is where we're going to begin, verse 18. And so the question we have here in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 that I want us to answer, is there anything that Jesus cannot do? Is there anything that God cannot do? And the initial thought might be, well, Jesus can do anything. Well, let's read this text. Hebrews chapter 6, we're reading here in verse 18, that by two immutable things, that is unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to what? To lie. Why is it impossible for God to lie? Because it goes against his character. He is the way, the truth and the life. He's the truth. And so what are the two immutable things? Well, if we go back in verse 16, for when God made a promise to Abraham, we could call that an oath. And then if we skip down to verse 16, it talks about, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them of all time. And so we have an, an oath and a covenant. Sorry, I gave you those backwards. We have the covenant with Abraham, and then we have the oath. Those are the two immutable, unchangeable things, and it's impossible for him to lie. God says what God says is truth because he is truth. He's the embodiment of truth. What he says is always true. In fact, I would go as far as to say, if it wasn't true, as soon as he said it, it would be true. That virtually was the creation account. So if God gives a promise, and if it is impossible for God to lie, then the reception of that promise means that it depends on our believing the promise. So since he cannot lie, since he is the truth, when he gives a promise, I don't have to question the promise. The promise is not to be questioned. The promise is to be accepted. Are you with me? Turn with me now to Luke chapter 24. I want to look at a promise of Jesus, Luke chapter 24, and we're going to read there in verse 49. You'll notice this is the last chapter of Luke, some of Jesus' parting words here, and in them we find a promise. Luke chapter 24, verse 49, it says, Behold, I send the promise, there it is, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So Jesus says, I send the promise of my Father, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, that Christ would be welcomed by the Father. 
And as the token that he was welcomed by the Father, he would send his Holy Spirit to his earthly followers. So the reception of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost by the disciples was the signal that Jesus' sacrifice had been accepted by the Father. And the proof of that is in Acts 2, verse 33. Let's turn there. Know these verses well. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God... And having received from the the Father the promise, there it is again, of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. This is a truth that is often overlooked by many Christians and Seventh-day Adventists. Where was the Holy Spirit poured out from? The simple answer is the sanctuary. That only the Holy Spirit that I'm interested in, really, the one that you and I should be worried about is the Holy Spirit poured out from the heavenly sanctuary. Now follow me closely. Jesus gave a promise to his earthly church that as he ascended to the Father and entered the holy place of the sanctuary, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out from the sanctuary on the early Christian church to begin the work of God on earth. Do you see that? The early Christian church believe that Jesus, however, was going to establish an earthly kingdom. They had a wrong picture of what Jesus was all about. They thought, for example, Peter, James, and John, they thought Jesus would give them a place in his kingdom. In fact, they went to their mother and said, talk to Jesus for us, that when he comes into his kingdom, we will sit one on the right and one on the left. The early disciples thought Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom, that he was going to defeat the Romans, that Israel would be prominent, if you will. But when Jesus died on Calvary, they were bitterly disappointed. Now, let me ask you, did those disciples have prophecies in the Old Testament telling them that Christ was, in fact, going to be crucified? They did. Isaiah 53 is a perfect example, but even still, they were bitterly disappointed. Somehow they had missed it. Their eyes were blinded, and they thought it was going to happen this way, and when Jesus died and happened another way, they were bitterly disappointed. That is the truth that's often overlooked by many Christians. Where the Holy Spirit is poured out from, and is poured out, I believe, in the sanctuary, from the heavenly sanctuary. In fact, here we have a picture of the sanctuary and Jesus ministering. So when Jesus died on the cross, again, as I said, they were disappointed. They had prophecies in the Old Testament, and we talked about that already. And I want to look at something here, put a chart up on the screen. The disciples, if we put a few things, lines up here, one, they studied prophecy. Two, they misunderstood prophecy. Couldn't we say that? Three, they were disappointed, right? We could even say a great disappointment. They looked to where Jesus was in the sanctuary, which was where? In the holy place, taking the blood of his sacrifice, if you will, that allowed him entrance into the holy place. Then we have accepted his promise of the Holy Spirit. That's the disciples. They accepted his promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out. That's the early reign. That's Pentecost. And they went to preach the gospel to the world And lastly, they preach to every creature under heaven. That's the disciples. But I want to ask you now, fast forward several hundred years, can you think of another group of people in the 1800s who also studied prophecy, who also misunderstood prophecy, who also were bitterly disappointed? In fact, we call it the great disappointment. 
They again looked to where Jesus was in the sanctuary, this time in the most holy place. And they accepted his promise of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was poured out. We call that the latter rain. And then they went to preach the gospel to the world. And they preached to every creature under heaven. Sometimes I hear people say, well, the Adventist church was raised out of a mistake. That's true. We misunderstood some things. The disciples misunderstood some things too. But even that misunderstanding was a fulfillment of prophecy. So it's important for us to understand where the Holy Spirit is being poured out from. In the latter days, just as in the New Testament, it's poured out from the sanctuary. And what do you know about the most holy place in the sanctuary? What is in the most holy place? Well, if we look at our picture, we have God's presence is there above the Ark of the Covenant, but there's also the, uh, the Ark that's there, the two angels, the cherubim. And if we look inside of the Ark, there are three things that we find there. One is the Ten Commandments, that's perhaps the most obvious. Then there's the, the Aaron's rod that budded is the second thing. And then there's the manna that is in the ark. And what do those three things represent? Well, the Ten Commandments, if, we, if we're going to apply this to the Holy Spirit, being poured out from the most holy place of the sanctuary, the Ten Commandments is the genuine Holy Spirit that always leads us to obedience. Secondly, we have Aaron's rod that budded. What's that all about? That represents leadership. You can look at Numbers chapter 17. Israel rebelled against the leadership of God. But the reality is the true outpouring of the Holy Spirit will lead people, men and women, to be faithful to those that he has placed in leadership. And lastly, the manna is God's provision. We could even say it was God's health reform, right? They wanted meat. He says, I'm going to give you manna. So the genuine Holy Spirit never comes down to work miraculous healings so that I can continue smoking and drinking and destroy the temple of God. Doesn't that make sense? Which goes against what much of the medical community, just yesterday I was asking somebody, I don't want to be a doctor today, they said. I said, how come? He says, everybody who doesn't want to change their lifestyle, they just want a pill that will fix it, and I can keep eating and doing all the things that are destroying my health. But the genuine outpouring of the Holy Spirit leads to health reform, it leads to following the leadership that God has put in place. And it's about obedience to God's word and his Ten Commandments. The counterfeit manifestation of the Holy Spirit leads you to want signs and wonders and miracles and feelings. But the genuine working of the Holy Spirit leads you to sense that your body is the temple of God. Leads you to respect authority and not to rebel against it. Leads you to live a life of godly obedience and touch people with the gospel. And so we've looked at these two verses. Let's read them again. Let's start. We're here still in Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, there in the heavenly sanctuary, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And what did we read? In Luke 24, 49, just to, to revisit that one more time. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tearing the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with what? Power from on high. So Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we see here in Luke 24, 49, receiving the promise, you receive power. But remember, the power is not for you to use the Holy Spirit, it's for the Holy Spirit to use you. It's a key distinction. 
So God the Father made a promise, and it is impossible for God to lie. So after Jesus' death and resurrection, he ascends to the sanctuary, enters the holy place, and the Father accepted his sacrifice, honored his promise. The Holy Spirit was poured out from the sanctuary, and God's people were filled with power to accomplish God's mission on the earth. And it goes to every nation, language, tongue, and people. Acts of the Apostles, page 49, says this, The promise of the Holy Spirit is not limited to any age or to any race. Christ declared that the divine influence of his spirit was to be with his followers unto the end. And I love this part at the end. The lapse of time has wrought how much change? No change in Christ's parting promise to send the Holy Spirit as his representative. In the fulfillment of the promise, it is not seen as it might be seen. It's because the promise is not appreciated as it should be appreciated. The lapse of time has brought no change in the promise. Christ's promise is just as real for you and for me as it was for Peter and for James and for John. Has the promise changed in any way? It has not. The question is, are you on your knees in your own personal life, in your own personal devotion, praying for the fulfillment of that promise in your life? Are you desiring, are you longing for the Holy Spirit to fill you with power to be effective witness for him? Are you setting aside time to pray, not just on your own, but in groups of two or three, praying, Lord, you have promised that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will come to you in the latter day church. And this is the promise that you have given. And with all promises, there are conditions. And one of the conditions of the promise is that we ask. Luke 11, 13 says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will I give to you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? One of the conditions of the reception of the Holy Spirit is asking, it's saying, Lord, I'm powerless, but you are powerful. I'm weak, but you are strong. I'm ignorant, but you're wise. Lord, we cannot do something about this unless your spirit is poured out. We need you to intervene in this situation. We need you to do something that only you can do. Have you ever been in a situation that seemed to be absolutely impossible, situation that no human being could possibly solve. Pastor Mark Finley tells a story that took place in July of 2001 when he went to Port Moresby to hold a big evangelistic campaign there. And just before they went, of course, the devil is at work. The devil knows the plans, right? And he works to mess things up. So just before they went, the parliament voted to nationalize the land. And what that meant was that one of the greatest resources of the New Guinean government would be sold off to multinational corporations. And university students recognized that this would damage their future generations, and so they started marching in the streets, they started protesting, and then you had some of these fringe groups get on board, and before long it was just a full-scale riot. Cars were being burned, storefronts were being pillaged, glass being broken, people marching in the streets. And so to try to put this rebellion down, the government attempted to control it with police and and government officials on the ground, and at a moment of crisis, they panicked, and they shot into the crowd, and they killed seven university students. And this, of course, made everything just go wide open, and so they decided, let's try to enforce a curfew then. And so from 7 o'clock in the evening till 7 o'clock in the morning, no one was allowed on the streets. This was a curfew, and they were going to be enforcing this. And that meant that right at the time that they were going to start their meetings virtually, 
that there was this curfew, they couldn't have their meetings. They had this huge arena, like soccer arena, that they had booked. They'd been planning this a year in advance, and they only had it in the evenings. They couldn't have it in the mornings or the afternoons. They had games and other things that were taking place. Plus, people wouldn't come in the middle of the day because they're at work and all the rest. And so Pastor Finley says, we organize a thousand prayer groups of twos and threes and fours, and we ask them to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to do something, to intervene for the gospel to go forward in ways that we cannot do. We don't even know how to pray except, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on the hearts of parliament, on the hearts of the people. Change something here. And so Pastor Mark got there on Monday, and the curfew was on. Curfew on Tuesday curfew on Wednesday, burned out cars in the streets. By Thursday night, Pastor Mark said to his team, get the stadium prepared. I believe the Spirit is going to do something. He's going to work on the hearts of Parliament, and I believe the Spirit can change things. And so they got the stadium ready, and they prayed, and they prayed, and that Thursday night, the Parliament met on into Friday morning till 2 a.m. They talked, and they discussed, and then, I will say the next day, but it was the same day, I suppose, On Friday morning, early, there was a late edition of the newspaper printed with these headlines. Parliament meets until 2 a.m. Curfew lifted. Then it went on to say this. Seventh-day Adventists will have their meeting tonight. The prime minister of the nation will address the people at the stadium tonight. The entire nation is invited, and he himself will introduce Pastor Finley. After the prime minister will speak, Pastor Finley will speak. And so here's a picture of the stadium. Now, this is a soccer game. That's the only one I could find. But I imagine that whole field was covered with chairs and with people and all the way around the outside. And Pastor Finley says, as he tells the story, we couldn't have paid for that kind of advertising, right? How on earth could we ever get that much attention, that much publicity? They estimate 100,000 people came to the stadium that night. It was larger than any soccer game that they had had in the stadium. It was larger than any political rally they'd ever had, larger than any rock concert. It was the largest meeting in the history of the country. In addition to that, the television carried it live. The newspaper printed all of his sermons. Every night they were on TV and radio, and it was estimated that anywhere between 2 million and 3 million people were tuning in each night. Friends, the Holy Spirit can do in a short amount of time what we can never possibly imagine. The lapse of time has brought no change in Christ's parting promise to send the Holy Spirit as his representative. And I believe God wants to do exceedingly, abundantly, above what we ask or think or could even imagine. If you, for the sin that you have struggled with for years, the parting promise of the Holy Spirit is yours. It's for you. God must do something in us before he can do something through us. I believe God is longing to pour out the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life. Let's look at another verse here. John 16, verse 7. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Who's speaking? Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, I tell you the truth. Why? Because he cannot lie. He is the truth. And he says, It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, what can that possibly mean? It is to your advantage that I go away? There's got to be an extra Greek meaning on this. Maybe advantage doesn't mean advantage in this case. Could that be? I mean, wait a minute, Lord. Suppose you're Peter, James, or John, and Jesus says to you personally in your presence, it's to your advantage 
Lord, I know you tell the truth, but I, I just, you've got to have made a mistake on this one. I mean, I saw you break the bread and feed 5,000, Lord. I saw you touch the eyes of the blind, and they were healed. I saw you touch the ears of the deaf, and they could hear. And you're saying it's to, your, to our advantage if you go away? And Peter may have spoken up and said, Lord, when my mother-in-law died, you raised her from the dead. Wait a minute, it's to my advantage? We are personally present with you. We have sat on the Mount of Olives and listened to you as you preach the sermon of end times. We have been there in Galilee listening to the Sermon on the Mount, and you're saying it's to our advantage if you go away? But I think if we understand the role of the Holy Spirit, and this is powerful, if you really understand this, the Spirit of Christ dwelling in your heart brings Jesus closer to you than if you were sitting by your side. And you might say, how can this be? Well, for starters, when Jesus was here, he could be visibly present with one person or group of people at any one time. I mean, let's just suppose that I could guarantee you that Jesus himself is going to be preaching this sermon right here from this pulpit next week. Would we have any sitting room here? Would people be on the floor up on the, the platform and we'd probably do a live stream thing and would we bring down the internet? I don't know. But he could only be present at one place at one time. When he went away, he could send his spirit, which is the personal presence of Christ, to be present with everybody everywhere, wherever they are, and geography would not limit his presence. And so he says, it's to your advantage. You may not be able to follow me everywhere, but the Holy Spirit can follow you anywhere. Desire of Ages 669 says it this way, by the Spirit, the Savior would be accessible to all. In this sense, he would be nearer to them than if he had not ascended on high. Wow. Nearer to them than if he had not ascended. But here's where it perhaps gets more challenging. Jesus said that it is to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, I will send you the Holy Spirit to you. Then Jesus said in Luke 24, 49, we read it already. He said, I'm giving you the promise of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus says in Acts 1, 6 to 8, tarry here until I send you the Holy Spirit. But here's the question. Why make those statements? Why make those statements? Wasn't the Holy Spirit present in the days of Noah? Wasn't the Holy Spirit present and with Daniel? Wasn't it the Holy Spirit that draw the disciples to Jesus in the first place? And if that's true, what sense does it make to say that I'm giving you the promise of the Holy Spirit if you already have the Holy Spirit? You see what I'm saying? I mean, if I say, if I've given you $10 already and I say, I promise by the end of the day you'll have $10, you would say, you already gave me $10. I mean, you're going to give me 10 more dollars? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Manuscripts Release, Volume 2, page 30. We are living in the dispensation of the Spirit. We hold in our hands the promise of His Spirit. Now think about this for a little bit. Dispensation means indulgence or special allowance or privilege. So if we go back and if we look at the Old Testament, the major emphasis is on a loving God leading His people. When you look at the New Testament, the major emphasis is on a loving Christ redeeming His people. And when you look at the New Testament today, or you look at the book of Acts, the major emphasis is on the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming and inspiring the lives of his believers. Somehow, someway, the Holy Spirit, I believe, takes everything that God did in the Old Testament and everything that Jesus did in his life, and he makes it a reality in the life of the believer. So just as God was in the forefront in the Old Testament, just as Jesus was in the forefront in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit takes what God did and what Jesus did and makes it a reality in our lives. And we can go a step beyond it. Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. 
Jesus would sit by his side, but could not dwell in them except by his Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a great advantage because no longer am I going to sit by your side and teach you truth. Now through the Holy Spirit, I'm going to enter into your life and reveal to you truth and change your life. So we ask, well, what is the function and work of the Holy Spirit and how does Jesus live within us? And we have to be careful because that sounds a little bit like a new age idea. Oh, the Holy Spirit is in me. God is in me. Well, if you ask him to possess you, he will. But that's far, far away from the idea that God is this inner sense within your gut. Let's unpack this a little more. John 15, 26. We're just going back a few verses here. It says in John 15, verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of who? Of me. And who's talking? Jesus is talking. And so the helper, this word is paraclete, one who comes alongside of, one who gives you strength or help or instruction. And so the function of the Holy Spirit in the heart and the life of the believer is to testify of whom? Of Jesus, to point back to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus, to make Jesus real in our lives. And so any emphasis on the Holy Spirit without the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus is really a false emphasis because the whole role of the Holy Spirit is not to exalt himself, but to point us back to Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't testify of himself. So we don't jump up and down and say, praise the Holy Spirit. We say, praise Jesus. And when we do that, it's the Holy Spirit placed within our heart that gives us the desire to praise Jesus. When I say, Lord Jesus, when I come to the cross and I see Christ dying for me, and I see the forgiveness of my sins, and I see Jesus transforming my life, who is leading me to do that? It's the Holy Spirit. So the genuine manifestation of the Holy Spirit is when we are exalting Jesus in our lives. Because the Holy Spirit's work is to testify about Jesus. But you still may be scratching your head saying, but how does Jesus dwell within us? Go back one more chapter, John 14, 26. Again, talking about the Holy Spirit. Again, Jesus talking. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit reveals to us the things that Jesus teaches in his word. Let's go to this. will be our last, last verse, and this was our scripture reading. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and 16. So the Holy Spirit directs us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit guides us into the truth and the words and teachings of Jesus. So any idea that there's a Holy Spirit that is just impressing you deeply, that is contrary to Scripture, is that a true or false spirit? That's a false spirit. We're supposed to test the spirits, right? And see if they're from God. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through what? His spirit in the inner man. So how are we strengthened to face the devil? Through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. Continuing on, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So how is Christ in our hearts? It's through faith, through the Holy Spirit living in us, through the inner man, that we will be grounded in love, verse 18, may be able to comprehend, you and I, with all the saints, what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, 
to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you want to be filled with the fullness of God? Do you want a deeper understanding of the height and the length and the breadth and the width? Then you need the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said to his early disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away. For when I go, I will send the promise of the Father. I will send the Holy Spirit. So wasn't the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Yes, but he was limited by what he could reveal to sinful fallen humanity. Now Jesus has come. The Holy Spirit is more fully able to reveal the full nature, the full character of God through the sacrifice of his Son. And so so now the Holy Spirit has all the pieces it needs to fully allow us to see and understand the height and depth and breadth of the love of God. Yes, the Holy Spirit was there to impress Noah. He was there on special occasions. But now he is not simply there to impress. He's not just there on special occasions. He is a resident in this world because of the promise of Jesus. He wants to dwell in us and change our hearts so that we can reveal the fullness of Christ to the world. We first have to see it ourselves, and then we share it with others. Verse 20 of of Ephesians chapter 3, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Six reasons why it's to your advantage. Now, through the Holy Spirit, he's accessible to all. Nobody can say, I can't get there. Secondly, through the Holy Spirit, he dwells in us in ways that are closer than if we would have him by our side, if he were present. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit reveals to us things that Jesus teaches in his word. So we have a a fuller, deeper understanding of his truth. Another advantage, so we can have strength to face the devil. Do you need strength to face the devil? Fifthly, so we can comprehend the love of God. And lastly, so we can reveal the fullness of Christ. To the world. The lapse of time has wrought no change in Christ's parting promise to send the Holy Spirit to them that ask. Why aren't we asking? Even now, God is pouring out His Holy Spirit from the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to convict me of my sin and give me power to overcome it, to reveal truth to me in His Word, to enable me to comprehend the fullness of His love, and to empower me to reveal, to witness, to evangelize for Him. But sadly, many of us don't want it. God has given us the riches of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, that we might have meaning and purpose in our life, that despite the challenges of life, we can have peace that passes all understanding, that we can be empowered in our witness, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. But sadly, too many of us are content living like paupers. We play our video games, we spend hours on Netflix, watching the next season of something else. We listen to music that's not uplifting. We go get tickets for concerts or sporting events. Our conversations, they're, they're secular. We put garbage in our bodies. And then we brag about all of this on social media and call ourselves Seventh-day Adventist Christians. We don't have time for family worship. We don't have time for Bible memorization. We don't have time to be involved in our local church. Yet we wonder, in the quietness of our thoughts, we wonder why the roof of our faith is leaking, why the power of our prayers have been cut off. Why the sins of our lives seem to be overgrowing and choking out. Why our peace is drying up and cracking and falling off. Friends, now more than any other time, we need to recognize our impoverished condition. And to repent of our sins. To repent of our lack of forgiveness. Sorry, our lack of commitment. To repent of our Laodicean state. And on our knees, with our Bibles open, pray, Dear Lord, I want to be filled with the fullness 
of God. Dear Lord, I want to know the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. I want to be able to comprehend with all the saints and all the believers what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. Lord, I long to be filled and empowered by your Holy Spirit. If that's your desire this morning, I invite you to stand. We're going to sing our closing song in just a minute. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. But I just want to make an appeal. If there's some habit, if there's some barrier, if there's some stressor that you need to give to Jesus, I want to invite you to come forward as we sing this simple song. This isn't a general call. I know all of us have things and we want to recommit and all of that, and that's wonderful. And I'm not trying to to downplay that at all. But maybe there's that one thing that the Holy Spirit is burning in your conscience right now. That one thing that you've known for a long time that you need to let it go. That one thing that's been destroying your relationship with God and with perhaps your family and, and the list goes on. That's stealing and robbing you of your peace and your joy. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you on a one thing, and if you want to give that thing up, if you want to actively make a statement to the Lord and saying, I'm giving you that one thing. I'm tired of this half-hearted, willy-nilly, going through the motions Christianity, but I have no peace in my life. I have no power to overcome. I'm not understanding your word. I'm tired of feeling separated. I'm tired of feeling guilty. I want to put it all on the altar, and I want your Holy Spirit to fill me. I want to repent and ask for you to forgive me of my sins and then to fill me with the presence of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to do that, I'm going to invite you to come forward, and I want to have a prayer with you. Dear Heavenly Father, you have done everything within your power to reach us individually and to reach lost humanity. You have sent us your Son as an example to live and to die. You have sent us the promise of the Holy Spirit. And if we ask, your Holy Spirit longs to dwell within us, to empower us, to overcome in these areas of our life. Lord, there are many here that have come forward today. And their heart's desire is to put that thing away, whatever it is, and to allow your Holy Spirit to empower them, that they will stand on the promises of God, the truth of your word that does not lie. And when temptation comes to repeat back, as you did in your temptations, as the devil tempted you in the desert, you repeated back scripture again and again and again as the power to overcome. Lord, that power is available to us. No lapse of time has diminished the parting promise of the Holy Spirit. And the same way that you long to work in us in miraculous and seemingly impossible ways, you long to work through this church, through us as individuals, through your people around the world, that this message can go forward. Lord, it is not by might, it's not by power, it's not by our good ideas, it's not even by our effort or our hard work or or working late or overtime, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And so Lord, with humility of hearts, we pray that you will pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Break us, melt us, mold us into your likeness, into your character, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.